You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Uh, Welcome to all of you worshiping uh, wherever you are. And uh, would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. This morning we're beginning a new series in the books of First and 2 Kings. The series is called Desiring the Kingdom. The books of First and 2 Kings, are, these are some books, this is a study I've wanted to do with our church for quite some time. These are historical books and they tell the history of the people of Israel after the time of King David. So 2 Samuel ends with the latter years of King David's life. 1 Kings picks up right there. So it ends with, it starts with the end of King David's life. Then it goes into the golden age of Israel during the time of King Solomon. But then what we're going to see, we're going to see the downward spiral that took place after Solomon turned his back on the Lord. We're going to see the process of how Israel became, went from being one nation to being two rival kingdoms. If you've ever wondered about that, we're going to see that here in First and Second Kings. We're going to see uh, in the midst of this, though, some amazing people who served God faithfully, even in the midst of a, a corrupt generation or in the midst of a society that had largely turned its back on God. And th- this is also the time of the prophets. In this time, we're going to see some people who were incredibly faithful to God, some people who are used by God in great way, and there's so much that we are going to take away from this and be able to apply to our lives today. But I want you to know this about these books when we study these. These books are not history just for the sake of history. These books have a message which is for you and me today. And I want you to know this. Do you know what these books are ultimately about? First and Second Kings? They're ultimately about Jesus. They're ultimately about Jesus. In these stories, we're going to be constantly pointed forward to the promise of an eternal kingdom and its coming king, Jesus Christ the Messiah. After Jesus' resurrection, there's a really interesting thing. Last week was Easter, and so we remember this. Luke's gospel tells us in Luke 24 that on the day of the resurrection, Jesus encountered some of his disciples. They were walking along a road, and Jesus met with them, and he talked with them. And later on that evening, he met with them in the place where they were having dinner. And here's what it says there in the Gospel of Luke, that on that day, on Easter Sunday, Jesus met with his disciples, and here's what he did. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. Now remember, those are the Old Testament scriptures. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What Jesus was showing the disciples that very first Easter, he opened the scriptures with them and he showed them, he explained to them that the Old Testament scriptures are really all about him. And how appropriate is it, therefore, that we, in the wake of Easter Sunday last week, that we are now going to open up the Old Testament and we are going to see how these Old Testament books point to Jesus. So as we read these pages, here's what, here's what I want you to see, as we're going to see the failures of human kings, as we're going to see the fall of human kingdoms, we're going to be constantly pointed towards Jesus, the King of kings who reigns over an eternal kingdom which cannot be shaken, which is here now in part, and yet which is coming in fullness on a day which we all look forward to. So First and Second Kings is all about 
desiring the kingdom of God and its king, Jesus. So all along the way, you're gonna see there's gonna be so much that we're gonna learn, so much that we're gonna be able to apply to our lives. So please read along with me. We're gonna be looking at 1 Kings 1 and 2, two chapters today, but we're gonna read, our text for reading is gonna come from 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. This is God's word. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your promises. Thank you that they are faithful and true. Lord, thank you for your word that you speak to us through it. Lord, help us to see how these historical events apply to our lives today. Lord, help us to understand them, help us to apply them, that we, Lord, might walk faithfully in your ways in our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the year 1829, there was a man named George Wilson. George Wilson was convicted in the state of Pennsylvania for robbery and attempted murder on the railway. And for this, George Wilson was sentenced to be hanged to death. Fortunately for George Wilson, the president of the United States at the time, Andrew Jackson, issued him a presidential pardon. However, and this is the only time this has happened ever in the history of the United States, George Wilson refused the pardon. He refused the pardon. And, and well, the government wasn't exactly sure what to do because it had never happened before. Do they still execute this man even though the president had pardoned him? But yet he had refused the pardon. So what do you do? Now, they took this, this case all the way to the Supreme Court. And there's this Supreme Court ruling, which you can look up even to this day. The Supreme Court justice at the time, a man named John Marshall, examined it and they, they issued a ruling. And here's what it said. Basically, it said, if a pardon is rejected, then they cannot force it on that person. They cannot force that mercy upon the person who refuses it. And so George Wilson against the desire and the efforts of the President of the United States to save him, George Wilson was hanged to death because he refused to accept the mercy that was extended to him. Here in 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2, we're going to see a story which is a lot like George Wilson. We're going to see a tale that has really three key elements that I want you to follow along with. Those elements are rebellion, mercy, and judgment. Rebellion, mercy, and judgment. And as we look at this story, we're going to see how those things relate to us as well and our relationship with God. The title of today's message is The Promise of a Kingdom. The Promise of a Kingdom. Let's begin by looking at this story under the first heading, which is the rebellion. That's the first part of the story. First Kings begins where Second Samuel left off with King David, the man who fought Goliath, the shepherd king of Israel, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the one who God called a man after my own heart. Now he, here he is at the end of his life, going the way of all flesh. 
We read in verse one that in his old age, David's body began to shut down and he was no longer able to maintain his body temperature. He was no longer able to stay warm no matter how many blankets they put on him. And so it says there in verse two that they sought therefore a young woman to lie in his arms in order to keep him warm. Now, that might sound very strange to you. That might sound even inappropriate or even immoral to you. And maybe it was. But historians tell us that this was actually a very commonly prescribed medical practice or, or treatment that would be given to people in the ancient world, right? They didn't have the same technologies that we have. And so one of the things that they would do is if there were a person was old, they were not able to maintain their body temperature, they would have another person lie in bed with them and warm them with their body. So we're told in verse four that they found a, a woman to do this. And, and here's an important point of the story. David did not sleep with this woman. So this was not a sexual thing. It was a medical treatment that she was providing for him. And yet, as part of this arrangement, this woman became a member of David's household. David's house, kind of treated as a member of his family. Now that's important. You'll see why later on. But understand that this would have been a great benefit to this woman. For example, this would have been something that would have lifted someone out of poverty, that they would become a member of the royal family and a member of the household of the king. Even And that would, that would have implications for their lives. They'd be taken care of even after the death of David in this case. So this woman takes this job and her name is Abishag the Shunammite. So any of you guys uh, having a little girl anytime soon, consider that name. It's a very pretty name, Abishag. It never really caught on. I'm, I'm not sure why. So at the same time, we're told in verse five that one of David's sons named Adoniah, it says, Adoniah exalted himself and declared that I will be king. He is self-appointing himself as the next king of Israel. Adoniah, by the way, is David's oldest surviving son. He's his fourth son, but the three older sons have died. We read about that in 2 Samuel. So Adoniah is the oldest surviving son of David. Now, the custom in most countries and in most monarchies at that time, at, like today, is that the oldest surviving son of the king or the queen in that case would be, become the heir to the throne. However, this was Israel. They didn't do things like other countries did almost in any way. And so in Israel, successors to the throne were chosen by God. They, they were chosen by God. They weren't just taken from lineage and birth order. Now, for example, David, he's the king right now. David, the, the king before him was Saul. David and Saul were not even related at all. God chose David to be the king. That's how it worked in Israel. And Adoniah knew that. He knew that he was not the person chosen to be the next king of Israel. In fact, we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, if you want to go and check that out, 1 Chronicles 28, that years prior to this, when David was still healthy and well, it had been determined that it was the Lord's will for Solomon to be the next king of Israel. And they even had a big ceremony while David was still healthy, announcing the fact that Solomon is going to be the next king of Israel. And Adoniah knew that. In fact, what we're going to see in, in chapter 2, Adonijah is going to confess out loud that he knew that God had chosen Solomon to be the next king. It says there in verse 5, read that again, Adonijah exalted himself and declared, 
I will be king. Adonai, what he's doing, this is a coup. This is him making a power play. He's trying to steal the throne, which he knows is not rightfully his. And he's trying to do it at a time when his father is sick and dying. He's trying to steal the throne out from under Solomon's feet. So in verse 7, Adonai, what he does is he conspires together with some of the other officials there from his father's, um, you know, cabinet, the, the government, and they join him in this rebellion. And uh, there are two key people who join him in this rebellion who you need to remember. The first is Joab. Joab is the commander of the army of Israel. He's been with David for a long time. You can read about him in Second Samuel a lot. The other one is Abiathar. Abiathar is the high priest of Israel at this time. But there are other people who refuse to join in this conspiracy and they say, no way, we know what you're doing, we don't want any part in it. And chiefly among those people are Nathan the prophet, right? And some other military leaders, they refuse to join this rebellion. So verse nine, Adoniah and his co-conspirators, what they do is they organize an inauguration ceremony. An inauguration ceremony and they invite a whole bunch of people to attend it but of course they don't invite Nathan the prophet or Solomon or Solomon's mom Bathsheba. So what is this? This is a rebellion. It's a coup. It's a power play. Adoniah is trying to take advantage of the fact that his father's sick and he's making a move to steal the throne against his father's wishes and against what he knows to be the will of God. The key phrase in verse five is that Adoniah exalted himself. He exalted himself. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12. He said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. At the root of rebellion, at the root of self-exaltation is the issue of pride, pride and covetousness. In the book of Ezekiel, we are told the story of how Lucifer, an angel, literally his name means angel of light, how Lucifer became Satan, a fallen angel, the father of lies. How? Well, again, Lucifer means light. And we're told there in Ezekiel that Lucifer was one of the chief angels and, and he was incredibly beautiful. And he got so puffed up with pride. He was so enamored with himself and so narcissistic that he led a rebellion in heaven against God himself. His goal was to dethrone God and to put himself in God's place so that all the heavenly beings would not worship God, but they would worship and serve him instead. And, and he exalted himself, Lucifer did. He tried to put himself in the place of God his actions were rooted in pride, which means this. He had too high a view of himself and too low a view of God. But of course, as you might know, Lucifer's rebellion was not successful. It backfired. And as a result, he was cast down along with those who joined him in that rebellion. And it's good for us to remember what it says in James chapter 4, verse 6, that God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In Adonijah's situation, we're gonna see very quickly, uh, he attempted to exalt himself out of pride. We're gonna see what that led to in his life. But here he is following the way of Lucifer, trying to dethrone the true king and take the place that rightly belongs to someone else. Now, I want to also mention a few words about Joab. Joab is a very intriguing person in the Bible. It's kind of hard to put your finger on him and say, is Joab a good guy or is Joab a bad guy? 
it's really hard to say because Joab is the commander of the army of Israel. Sometimes he's very loyal to David, but over the years, he's done some things that are very questionable. For example, when David uh, committed sin by having uh, an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, uh, Joab, he calls up Joab on the phone and says, hey, Joab, here's what I did. And Joab says, I'll help you take care of it. And he, as the commander of the army of Israel, orchestrated the situation so that Bathsheba's husband was on the front line. Everybody took a step back and he got shot and killed right there by himself with arrows and, and stabbed. So Joab, you know, basically murdered this guy to cover up for David. Later on, when David's son Absalom tried to steal the kingdom from him, you can read about that in 2 Samuel, Joab went and killed Absalom against David's wishes. David had said, don't kill him. Absalom went out and killed him anyway. And Joab now here, uh, during this rebellion against Solomon, even though he knows that it's David's will and the will of God for Solomon to become king, he again joins the rebellion. So what do we make of Joab? Here's what I see about Joab. Joab is a person who does whatever Joab thinks is right to do. Right, so he'll follow orders sometimes if he personally agrees with them, but in other cases, when he doesn't, he'll do whatever he feels like doing. The only person Joab is loyal to is Joab. Now, so that brings us, that's the rebellion. Let's talk about the mercy. In verse 10, we read that Nathan the prophet, he catches wind about this rebellious coup that's taking place. And so he goes and he tells Bathsheba, who is Solomon's mother, and Bathsheba goes and tells David what's going on and, and about this attempt to steal the throne, this conspiracy. And so David quickly calls together some of his cabinet members, different leaders, and he organizes a ceremony right away to anoint Solomon as king. They were planning on doing it at a different time. He says, no, 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 we're gonna do it right now, immediately. And so here's the interesting thing. They, they do it at the same place where Adoniah is planning to do his inauguration ceremony, but they're gonna beat him to it, right? And so what they do is they put Solomon on a mule, which by the way, this is the tradition in Israel that when kings go to their coronation, they don't ride on horses, they ride on mules or donkeys, which is why, of course, on Palm Sunday, Jesus enters into Jerusalem announcing himself as the king of the Jews, the rightful king in the line of David, and he comes on a donkey. Okay, but the priest, they get another priest. The priest's name is Zadok because, of course, the high priest, Abiathar, has gone in the rebellion, and the prophet Nathan. Prophets in those days, as we're going to see a lot through First and Second Kings, they acted kind of like functionally as the pastors of the people, the pastor of the nation. So these two together, the prophet Nathan and, and the priest Zadok, they go and they anoint Solomon in this place called Gihon, now, this is the same place, the same area where Adonai's ceremony was planned to take place, but they beat him to it. So Solomon's anointed king and Adonai and his people, right, they're getting ready to have their ceremony and they hear these trumpets. They hear people shouting for joy and clapping and they're like, what was that noise? So this messenger comes over and he tells them, well, that noise was they just anointed Solomon king of Israel. Basically, they beat us to it. So it says when Adonai heard those words, it says he trembled and he arose. He trembled and he arose and he starts running. Everybody, you can imagine, all the people who are involved in this rebellion, they start running, scattering in different directions. And where does Adonai run to? It tells us in verse 50. 
Adonijah runs to the tabernacle and he grabs a hold of the horns on the altar. Now in the tabernacle, which is where they did the sacrifices, and later in the temple, once that's going to be built, later on here in 1 Kings, the altar was a big um, big metal altar and on the corners there were these horns that came up. So what he's done is he's thrown himself upon the altar and he's holding on to the horns of the altar. Now this is interesting. There was a common belief in that time that if a criminal was on the run and they were able to evade the authorities enough to make it to the tabernacle and they threw themselves on the altar and held on to the horns of the altar that then it was like, you know, going to base, right? Like when you're playing games, like you can't be touched. You were free and they, the authorities couldn't touch you. You had complete impunity. Except the problem with that is that wasn't actually a thing, right? A lot of people thought it was, but it's not in the, in the law of Moses. It's not in the, any of the Jewish laws. It was an urban legend. It was something that a lot of people believed, but it wasn't actually true. So he goes in there and, and he's holding on to the altar and, and he won't come out. And he says, I'm not gonna come out unless Solomon promises that he won't put me to death for my rebellion. Now, remember this whole thing about holding on to the altar. This is not an actual rule, right, that Solomon has to observe. He's under no obligation to have mercy on Adonijah just because he's holding on to the altar. But Solomon decides to show him mercy anyway. It says in verse 52 of chapter one, if Adonijah will show himself to be a worthy man, I won't touch even a hair on his head. But if he acts wickedly, then he will die. Okay, so remember those parameters. They're gonna be important. So Adonijah comes out of the tabernacle. He pays homage to Solomon as the king. Adonijah shows humility. He shows repentance for what he's done. And Solomon lets him go home and shows him mercy. Nice story, right? But that's not the end of the story. We gotta go on to chapter two and we'll really see what this story is all about. And that brings us to our third point, which is judgment. So we've seen rebellion, we've seen mercy, and that brings us to the point of judgment. Chapter two begins with David's final words to Solomon before he died, right? Deathbed words. In verses one through nine of chapter two, David calls Solomon in and he tells him two things. Number one, he reminds him of God's promise of a kingdom. God's promise of a king and a kingdom. Number two, he warns him about Joab. He warns him about Joab. Okay, so in verses one through four of chapter two, David reminds Solomon of the promise which God gave him back in 2 Samuel chapter seven. And there in 2 Samuel chapter seven, God promised that the savior of the world, the Messiah, would be a king who would be a descendant of David and that king would establish the eternal kingdom. Now this is why when Jesus came, he was known as and he was called by many people the son of David. It was an acknowledgement that Jesus was a fulfillment of this promise given back in 2 Samuel. That's why, of course, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of Luke, two of the four Gospels begin with genealogies about Jesus. Why are those genealogies there? Uh, because people like to read them? No, they're there because they're Jesus' credentials, right? They're the proof that he is qualified to be the Messiah, that he ticks all the boxes. Now, we tend to read through them and we're like, yeah, 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 right? A bunch of names of people I can't pronounce who I'm never gonna meet. So we skip those sections. If you were, but I'm telling you, if you were a Jewish person in the time of Jesus, you would have read that over with a fine tooth comb. You would have gone and checked the Old Testament. Who are these people? You would have made sure that, th that Jesus really is, and he has the credentials to be the, the descendant of David, this promised king over the eternal kingdom. 
But along with the promise of a Messiah, God also promised that David's family dynasty would never lack a king to sit on the throne of Israel if, and that's a big if, which you see here, if they paid close attention to walk before the Lord in faithfulness with all their hearts and all their souls. And, and this part of the promise is mentioned in chapter two, verse four. 1 Kings chapter two, verse four. Why? Because this is a foreshadowing of everything that is going to come later in this book. Everything that's gonna happen after this. And here's why. It's a big if because sadly, as we're gonna see, not all of David's descendants are going to walk with God. They're, they're, going, they're not going to be the kinds of kings that God called them to be. And the result of this will be suffering, pain, and loss for all the people. Even the best of these kings that are going to come, they are all going to fall short in the end. Even Solomon, as we'll see. And as a result, there will be many years in which there is no descendant of David sitting on the throne of Israel. Think about it, in the time of Jesus, there was no descendant of David sitting on the throne of Israel. In our day right now, there is no descendant of David sitting on the throne of Israel. For the last 2,500 years and more, there has not been a descendant of David sitting on the throne of Israel. And yet, we have this promise. The, the one promise is this. There is one true king who has come and who is coming again. He is the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And his kingdom, the new order that he brings, is the one that all of us long for deep down in our heart of hearts at the core of our being. So David reminds Solomon of God's promises regarding the kingdom, but he also gives Solomon a warning about Joab. He says, look, Joab was part of this rebellion. I'm here to tell you, man, this guy Joab, don't trust him as far as you can throw him. He is a bad dude. He is dangerous. I wouldn't put anything past him. Don't trust him. So David then dies. And then and now here's where the story gets interesting. Chapter two, verse 13. We read that Adoniah, right, the guy who tried to steal the throne from Solomon, he approaches Bathsheba, who's Solomon's mom, and here's what he says in verse 15 of chapter two. Well, you know that the kingdom was mine and all Israel fully expected me to reign. Is that true? I, I don't think so, but go on. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's for it is his from the Lord. Okay, Adonijah, he's seriously spinning this story, isn't he? He and a few rebels who were backing him up had tried to steal the throne of Israel. He makes it sound like Solomon stole the throne from him. But in the end, it's interesting because he admits that he knows that the Lord gave this, the throne to Solomon and not to him. But what he's trying to do is he's kind of trying to make Bathsheba feel bad for him. Like, oh, you know, poor Adonijah. You know, Solomon took the kingdom from him and so I guess I could, you know, give him something if he wants it. And so Adonai says, here's what I want. Please ask Solomon, verse 17, to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Remember her? Abishag the Shunammite, the, the one who joined David's family in order to lie there to keep him warm in his old age. Now Adoniah wants to marry her. Why? What's going on here? Well, the reason Adoniah wants to marry her 
is because what he's trying to do is he's trying to build a case. He's trying to build an argument which he can then take and go on a campaign throughout Israel to say that he, not Solomon, is the one who really deserves and really has the credentials to be the king of Israel. Why? Because he'll say, well, not only am I the oldest surviving son of David, but look, I'm married to a member of his household, right? So he say, you know, I've got more reasons to be king than Solomon does. Now Bathsheba, of course, she sees right through what uh, Adonai is doing and she goes and she tells Solomon about this new conspiracy that he's worked up to try to, you know, turn people against Solomon, turn people to himself. So Solomon orders Adonai to be arrested and put to death. And here's why this is so crazy. Adonai had already received mercy. He had received mercy. Solomon had forgiven him for his sin of rebellion, but the pardon Solomon gave him had parameters. It had parameters. And Adonai is disregarding those parameters and he's now crossed the line. And as a result, in spite of the mercy he had received or been offered, Adonai has now gone outside the parameters of that pardon and now he is receiving the judgment for his crimes of rebellion. The next guy in there, remember there were three main leaders of this conspiracy. The next one is Abiathar the priest, the high priest. What happens to him, we read there in chapter two, he's removed from his job as priest and he's not executed, but he's replaced with Zadok, the priest is the new high priest. And then we have Joab. Now check out what Joab does when he gets this news that Solomon has been established as king. When, when Joab hears the news, he knows that he's in trouble. So what does he do? Same thing as, as Adonai did. He runs to the tabernacle and what does he do? He throws himself on the altar and he grabs a hold of the horns of the altar. Why? Because he wrongly, mistakenly believes that if he does that, that he will receive impunity, that he will, not be, uh, he will not be judged for his crimes. Again, let me remind you, as I mentioned earlier, this was a common belief, like an, like an urban legend, that you could get away with this, but it wasn't an actual rule. People thought that if you did this and you were guilty of a crime, then you would receive impunity. But it, again, it wasn't actually a real rule. And here's what I want you to see. This is the most important part. Rather than repenting for his actions, Joab tries to save himself. Rather than seeking mercy and repenting and seeking forgiveness, Joab tries to save himself and it fails. The people who have come to arrest Joab, they come and what do they do? He's holding on. You can't take me if I'm holding on to the altar. And they say, no, Joab, that's actually not even like a real thing. They take him, they arrest him, and he receives the judgment for his crimes. And finally, chapter two ends by telling us about one more rebel. Now his story again goes back to 2 Samuel and this rebel also receives a judgment. This man's name is Shimei. Shimei. Shimei had been a rebel for a long time, ever since the time of King David. He had turned people against the king, etc. Now when Solomon becomes king, Solomon goes and he offers Shimei mercy. He offers him mercy and they make an agreement. Very much like Adoniah though, this mercy that he offers him, it has certain parameters. So he goes to him, he says, okay, let's make a deal. Shimei, I will allow you to live. You will not be judged, but here's the rules. You have to live in a house in Jerusalem and you can't leave the city, right? You can leave your house. You just have to stay in Jerusalem. 
It's kind of like being on probation, right? Solomon wants to keep his eye on this guy. And he says, you know, as long as I can kind of keep my eye on you and see what you're up to, as long as you stay in Jerusalem, then, um, you know, you, you're not going to get in trouble for being a rebel. So Shimei agrees that this is a fair and generous offer. And for a while, Shimei honors this agreement until one day he decides not to. One day, Shimei decides that he's going to leave Jerusalem even though he's not supposed to. He disregards the parameters of this offer of mercy that's been extended to him. And as a result, Shimei received the judgment not for leaving Jerusalem. It's the judgment for his crimes which he had previously committed as a rebel, which was death. Okay, how does this apply to us? You're like, wow, interesting stories. Why should I care? Let me tell you. Think about this story. What's it about? Rebellion, mercy, and judgment. Rebellion, mercy, and judgment. Look, guys, the stories of these rebels, they directly parallel the stories of our lives and how God interacts with us and how we respond to God. In these stories, we see four rebels and we see three different responses to the offer of mercy and three different ways they deal with it in the face of judgment for their sins. This story is the story of our lives. This parallels our lives. It parallels how God interacts with us and how we respond. Look, li like these men in the story, you and I, we're rebels. That's who we are. At different times and in different ways, you and I have rebelled against God and his authority, his kingship over our lives. Just like the men in these stories, there are different ways and different times and there are different levels of rebellion, right? Some people rebel in a very bold-faced, intentional way, but other people, their rebellion is much more subtle. Just as Solomon was the rightful king over Israel, God, as our creator, as our sustainer, he is the rightful king over this world, but also over each of our lives individually. And yet at different times and in different ways, all of us have rebelled against his rule and authority. We have failed to honor him as the king that he is. We have knowingly at points, disregarded his commandments. We have failed to always give him the highest place of allegiance in our hearts and in our lives. The essence of sin is when we put ourselves in the place of God. The essence of sin is when we put ourselves in the place of God. The ess essence of sin and rebellion is that we seek, like Adoniah did, to exalt ourselves. We have too high a view of ourselves and too low a view of God, and we seek to assert ourselves as lords and masters over our own lives. When we insist that we, and not God, are the ultimate authority, Right? When we say like the people of Jerusalem said about Jesus, we will not have this man rule over us. The story of these rebels, this is the story of us. This is the story of our lives. This is our story. The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all rebelled at times against God and his authority over our lives and in our hearts at different times and in different ways. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin, the judgment that is deserved because of our rebellion is death. And because of our rebellion against God, 
we're told that not only do we have this judgment, but we are at enmity with God. We, there's a tension, there's a discord between us and God. And that's pretty bad news, but it's not even the end of the story. Here's the end of the story, which is actually the good news. The end of the story is this, there is hope. There is hope. That is the message of the gospel. The gospel being the the core message, the essential message of Christianity, the essential message that the Bible teaches throughout. The word gospel, it means good news. And here's what the good news is, that God has made a way for us through this Messiah, through this promised Savior, this eternal King, Jesus Christ. He has made a way for rebels like you and me to be reconciled and forgiven, to be pardoned, to receive mercy and grace. The message of the gospel is that God has done something so that we who are rebels, we who are enemies of God can be reconciled and we can become friends of God. Even more than that, it says that God doesn't only call us his friends, but he adopts us as his children and treats us as beloved sons and daughters. Now, how is that possible? Here's how, because even though we, in our rebellion against God, sought to exalt ourselves, Jesus came, God came, and what did he do? He lowered himself. He bowed down to us, right? We sought to exalt ourselves. We sought to take the place that only he deserved to be in, and yet God, out of his love for you, what did he do? In the person of Jesus Christ, he came, and on the cross, he took the place that only you deserve to be in. He took the place of of judgment so that we could be reconciled, so we could be forgiven and transformed and made friends and, and made children of God. Guys, the gospel is the only story in which the hero gives his life out of love for the villain in order to save him, right? The gospel is the story in which the king gives his life out of love for the rebels in order to transform them into children and into friends. Paul He looks at this, Paul the Apostle looks at this in Romans chapter five at just the beautiful yet absurdity of this, right? It's so beautiful and yet it's so absurd that someone would die for their enemy, that someone would die for a villain. And here's what he says in chapter five. He says this, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came to us at just the right time and died for sinners, He says, now, most people would be willing to die for an upright person, though some people might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And then he says in verse 10 of that same chapter, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. Guys, that's love. That's radical love. Our God is a God who loves rebels, rebels like you and rebels like me, and he has acted in order that we might not only receive mercy, but so that we could become children and friends. And here in this story, our attention is brought to one very important aspect, and this is where I'd like to land with you. One very important aspect, and that is the nature of mercy and the nature of pardons. Okay, and here's what they are. The nature of mercy is that it's a gift and the nature of pardons is that they have parameters. Mercy's a gift and pardons have parameters. The fact that mercy is a gift means that it must be received, it must be accepted. Remember the story of George Wilson who did not receive, did not accept the mercy that was offered to him. L- like that man, right? He received a presidential pardon and yet he had to receive it. He had, and, and when he refused to receive it, he was not pardoned. Uh, the other aspect of this story is that a pardon has parameters. 
pardon has parameters. We've been given this salvation in Jesus and yet it does have certain parameters, doesn't it? Parameters that we have to submit to in order to receive and experience that salvation. Here in 1 Kings 1 and 2, right, we see three different ways in which people responded to judgment and mercy. First of all, we see Joab who tried to save himself. Then we see Adonijah and Shimei who disregarded the parameters of the pardon. And then we see Abiathar, the high priest, who receives this gift of mercy with humility. And these three ways of relating to judgment and mercy are also lived out by people today, probably being lived out by, by all of us in some form or another in one of these three ways. See, many people respond like Joab. Joab, remember, he's the guy who tried to save himself. He realized that he did whatever what was right in his own eyes. He realized that he was in trouble, that he was subject to judgment because of his sins, because of his crimes. And he goes and he tries to save himself. But here's the thing. Joab thought that if he did this certain thing that he could save himself and he was dead wrong. He thought that he could save himself, but it didn't actually work that way. And let me tell you what, there are so many people today who are like Joab, aren't there? People who think, well, yeah, maybe I haven't been the person I should have been. And, and maybe, therefore, you know, it makes sense that the righteous God, I'll have to stand before him one day. But I'm sure if I'm a good enough person, if I do these things, I can save myself. The sad part about that and the part that we cannot miss is that like Joab, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. There's only one way to be saved and, and we can't do it ourselves. It's by receiving the mercy of the king. And so tragically, Joab receives the judgment for his sins. The other, there, on the other hand, there are people who respond to the issue of judgment and mercy the way that Adonijah and Shimei did. Both of them initially seemed contrite. They both wanted mercy. They both received it and yet their pardons had parameters which they were unwilling to accept. And as a result, they received judgment for their rebellion. In Adonijah's case, the parameters were no more conspiring to overthrow the king. In Shimei's case, the parameters were don't leave Jerusalem. But in both cases, both these men, they received the judgment for their prior actions. Why? Because they disregarded the parameters of the pardon. How about in Jesus? Are there parameters to this pardon that God has offered us in him? Yeah. In Acts chapter four, we're told that there is one name given under heaven by which people must be saved, one. We're told in Hebrews six, the writer is writing to people who are considering walking away from Jesus and he says, you understand, right? That apart from him, there is no sacrifice to take care of sin. It, Jesus himself declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And there are some people who look at that today and they say, oh, that's so restrictive, it's so exclusive. What if I don't want to do that? What if, I, what if I want to believe the way I want to believe and do the things I want to do? Again, every pardon has parameters. Another parameter, of course, of this pardon is that we have to come to God. We have to humble ourselves before him. We have to confess our sins and confess that Jesus is Lord and King. And again, some people... They, they might admit that they need mercy, but they're unwilling to submit to the parameters of this pardon. Adonijah and Shimei, they're examples of that. And sadly, we see what happens to them, that outside of those parameters, there is no salvation. And their story is, is quite sad in a way because they forfeit the opportunity to receive mercy because of their own stubbornness their unwillingness to submit to the parameters of the pardon. And finally, we see 
one last way, and that is the way of Abiathar, the high priest. Again, he was the high priest who had joined the rebellion. How does Abiathar respond? Well, he responds by humbly receiving and accepting the offer of mercy. And as a result, he loses his job, but he keeps his life. And I just want to end today by asking you this. How will you respond to the kingship of God? How will you respond to the kingship of God over you and over your life? Will you persist in rebellion? Will you persist in seeking to dethrone God and to take that position of king over your own life? Or will you honor the rightful king and give him your allegiance and ask him to forgive your rebellion and show you mercy instead of judgment? And how will you relate to God's gift of mercy which he offers you in Jesus Christ? Will you respond like Joab and seek to save yourself? That didn't work for him and I'll tell you this, it won't work for you either. Or will you respond like the people who refused to accept the parameters of the pardon? They unnecessarily perished because they persisted in going their own way and doing their own thing. Or will you, with humility and thankfulness in your heart, receive that gift of God's grace and mercy? I want to encourage you today. Let us be those who humble ourselves before God and receive the gift of his mercy and grace. He is the true king. His heart towards you is one of love and grace. So may we be those who receive the gift with humble hearts And may we be those who give our allegiance to the true king, the one who gave his life to make rebels into friends and children. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this gift of your grace. Thank you, Lord, that though we have rebelled in different ways and at different times, Lord, though we have not uh, acknowledged you in every way as king that you are, Lord, thank you that you love, you extend love and mercy and grace to rebels like, like us. Lord, help us to be those who humbly receive it. Lord, help us to be those who who receive it with thankfulness in our hearts and who acknowledge you as the king that you are. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who says, you know what, I do need to do that. I need to get my life into that place of, of receiving God's mercy, receiving God's grace, and stop trying to do things my way and to submit to the great king. Lord, I pray for those people that that all of us really would come to that place in our lives. Lord, I'm sure that there are different areas of our lives where that applies to us. Lord, help us to acknowledge you as the true king. Thank you that you are the one who died to make rebels like us children and friends. We want to receive that by faith today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.